Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stoga welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. It is trite but true that we live at an inflection point in the global scenario. Pandemic, recession, growing doubts about the future and form of capitalism, challenges to democracy, the list goes on and on. These forces impact everyone and every organization, public or private. Some are hunkering down, some are embracing the challenge of change. One that seems to be embracing these evolving new realities is the Robert Bush Stiftung, one of Europe's leading private foundations. My guest today is Sandra Brecca, one of the foundation's leaders. Welcome, Sandra. Good afternoon from Berlin, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. One of the things that I find so amazing about the Robert Bush Foundation is that you recently did what very few large, successful organizations can even conceive of doing. You undertook a comprehensive review of your international portfolio, decided to stop what you were doing, and relaunched in new directions. So let's start there. Everybody does what they call strategic reviews, but very few do what you did. Literally stop, rethink, and reboot. Why and how did you do it? Well, uh, we indeed have, um, have done a realignment, um, which was unique in our history. We had been doing strategic development in the past, too. But uh, after more than five and a half decades, had realized that we had evolved organically, adapted our strategies, but that the world actually had evolved and was evolving and changing even more radically a few years ago. We felt that uh, based on the legacy of our founder, it was our duty to look at the world, at the most important trends, and what actually the interpretation of that legacy would mean in today's world. We did it before COVID, before the pandemic started, and we are very glad to be at that point. We focused massively. We went from 34 topics in five focus areas to 10 topics in three focus areas. And we were what everybody told us to be and advised us to be absolutely consistent in the implementation of this new strategy. As you thought through what you were, what you'd become, what you want to be, what was the biggest challenge? Well, first of all, uh, we were still funding in the areas that we have been funding uh, in before. And doing a full exit was uh, a great challenge. Secondly, we felt that this needed to be a process uh, with great ownership within the organization. And uh, we did this process in a way which meant that we did not know the outcome at the end. So there was a lot of insecurity within the organization and among partners. And uh, to work with that insecurity and to say that it's fine to have this insecurity and that actually there will be light at the end of the tunnel was uh, very important. And then obviously, you know, you have uh, so many stakeholders which have their own interpretation of what the foundation is supposed to be and how it is supposed to work. Um, but, uh, and we were definitely an organization which had changed uh, over, the, over the last five and a half decades. But doing it so radically uh, is, uh, is quite challenging. And you can be also, you know, scrutinized from outside, from inside. So creating ownership, I would say, exiting responsibly from the commitments we had made in the past, and uh, creating a strategy which would um, 
you know, hold even under pressure, and it, it actually did under the COVID pressure, um, and which would prove to be the right strategy for the next decades. That was a big challenge. Let me ask you about COVID, because timing in all things matters, and your timing was either perfect or perfectly awful, because you finished this shortly before the pandemic strikes, and you began implementing during the pandemic. What's been the impact of COVID on on the foundation, on your work? Yes. Well, actually, you're right that in the international work, we had finished the strategic process, but in our other areas, health and education, the strategic process was still evolving. So we were asking ourselves whether the decisions that had been made uh, at the end of the, the process were actually those that um, uh, would still hold true uh, even as the pandemic hit. And um, we were very glad to see that the issues that we had uh, chosen to work on were still as relevant or even more relevant even with the pandemic evolving. On the other side, like many philanthropic organizations, you know, we were faced with the challenge of implementation of um, our work, of projects, of programs, the difficulties partners had of reaching out to partners, uh, which all went online. And we are very glad that we were able to do so. But, you know, it, there, there is a challenge in being far away for all of us from where we are hoping to have impact and interaction. So, um, you know, we had to look at how we work, whether we were digitalized enough, which we were in the end, but then also how, what it meant to roll out strategies at a moment where, when you're not able to reach out to new partners, it's easier with existing partners, when you're not able to travel to the places where you want to have impact, um, when you're not able to really develop the new teams that you have just put together and the spirit that you need in such new teams. So these were the main challenges. Uh, let me widen the aperture just a bit and ask a completely unfair question. The pandemic will end eventually, or to evolve in other ways. What kind of normal do you expect to be coping with when, when we get to the other side of whatever this river we're crossing is? I think the new normal is, uh, first of all, it, you know, we, all of us have to stop and re-evaluate re um, what we are doing and how we are doing it. And um, I think the, the new normal in the how we are doing it will be that the digital realm uh, will still remain extremely important and more important than before the pandemic, that we will be more selective in, for example, how much we travel, where we travel to, you know, how much personal interaction we need. This all needs uh, a rebalancing, but we will not go to the world we, we left uh, before the pandemic came. I think this is very clear. Secondly, I think we are all forced to look at uh, what exactly we are doing and why. And we will have to respond to that question and see how relevant we still are. We will have to respond to maybe different needs in, in many places. And there is a lot that we still don't know. We, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic. We are all hoping for vaccinations to be rolled out and to work. We're all hoping uh, that uh, the different lockdowns we are experiencing will come to an end. But I would say that um, there is a question mark in many things. So there will not be a back to the normal that we had before. But uh, we still have to wait and be patient to see what the consequences will exactly be. One of the things that I think um, this pandemic has shown is how important cooperation is. Uh, both in the health sector and other sectors and on other issues with uh, between sectors, but also across countries and, and borders. Let me pick up on that because you 
personally as well as institutionally are a globalist. Arguably, whatever else this pandemic is, it's a global problem that demands global solutions. However, much of the reaction has been national or even local. At the moment, there's a huge global debate about vaccine nationalism. Why is the question. Why haven't we been able to define and sustain a truly global approach in the face of this overwhelmingly global issue? Well, I think uh, the response to COVID was, um, you know, um, mirrored the global situation that we have. If you talk about uh, global cooperation, uh, what previously we would uh, maybe have called multilateralism and how we respond to the different challenges. I think climate change is another one that you can look at, but it's, of course, even more existential and more long term. I think it's very symptomatic of the world we live in, where um, the global cooperation is very difficult, and even under the pressure of a pandemic, um, and the need for such cooperation is is difficult. You know, the pandemic, I think, has um, been unique in that it has affected everybody, and that everybody had information about responses uh, by others and globally, and um, everybody was, all citizens were able to compare the response in their own countries with uh, the responses in other countries. On the other hand, it has been a uniquely, you know, confining moment to all of us, physically, in terms of our mobility, in terms of our outreach, uh, in terms of, you know, um, creating empathy for the situation of others. So it's sort of this, um, I would say, tension between an extremely global and an extremely local and individual moment. I think it has shown that global cooperation is necessary. There have been surveys around the world which also show that citizens from all over the world, both the global south and other countries, the west and so on, all want global cooperation and that they see health um, and climate and some other issues, inequality, as the main challenges. But uh, the governments will have to step up to this. And in some ways, we also don't have the correct instruments in all places. But that really is the question, because people may want cooperation. They may see that it is obviously a global problem. Yet institutions, governments, regional arrangements have more or less failed more or less everywhere. Or at least, if not failed, that may be too strong have not led in in a global fashion, quite the opposite. So the question becomes, and this is the work your institution does, your foundation does, what do we need to do to respond to that demand of people that we work more cooperatively? There are global solutions to global problems because a year into this, we, we aren't doing very well. Well, I can start with our founder, Robert Bosch, you know, he stood for um, international understanding, uh, for international cooperation. At the time, it was a lot about, you know, bilateral relations with other countries and uh, in particular, Germany's relations with its neighbors. So when we asked ourselves, what does actually international understanding mean today or what did he mean at the time? Um, and he was, you know, strongly motivated by the objective of creating peace and stability in societies and preserving human dignity. And we asked ourselves, what does it mean today? Today, international understanding and creating peace means finding common solutions to the issues that we are all concerned with and that affect us all. And finding these solutions, despite the fact that we have 
you know, a very changing and a global order which is in flux. And despite the fact that we have competing political and societal models and systems, and we still, you know, even though you have different powers emerging, others reshaping their roles, we actually will not be able to work on climate change individually. We will not be able to solve issues of inequality individually. We will not combat the pandemic individually and not even in small multilateral settings. So I think, um, you know, there is a strong push by citizens. And uh, once this pandemic is over or comes to, you know, comes to a situation where it's better managed, I think citizens will want such cooperation uh, in many places. And, you know, governments will probably be held accountable more. But we are at a very difficult juncture with how the global order is changing to be able to achieve that. At the virtual Davos meeting in January, uh, Russia's President Putin talked about a dark anti-utopia. And, and there's a quote I want to read to you. He said, there is a real danger that we will face a downturn in global development fraught with an all-out fight, attempts to solve contradictions by searching for internal and foreign enemies, and the destruction of basic traditional values. That is about as dark a vision as I've heard anyone put forward recently. I hope he's wrong, but do you think he is, and, and, and how do we prove him wrong? Well, I think there is a, a risk of deterioration. On the other hand, I want to be an optimist, and um, I do believe that there is a lot of awareness of the risks and dangers. We, you know, we do have uh, changes in different countries, in relevant countries, uh, in government. We do see that there is a large majority worldwide which stands for global cooperation. Uh, there has been a, a UN survey which proved that, and that it was irrespective of where the survey was done, even though obviously people judge the threats a bit differently depending on where they live. But, um, and you know, we, we live in very polarized times, both within our societies um, and between societies and countries. And yet, uh, uh, you know, if, if we follow that lead and if we subscribe to what he said, um, there is no use in continuing to work. I think we have to mobilize all our resources to actually um, not make that vision come true. Citizens have to mobilize resources. Citizens have to count uh, their, um, you know, governments uh, accountable, to hold their governments accountable. And um, it is, uh, these are issues that have to be solved across sectors. So it's both elected officials uh, and the private sector and civil society and everybody um, thinking about finding solutions together. Um, it's going to be a difficult period ahead. But I would say that there is still hope that there is more reason and more optimism around uh, to not make that uh, or allow that to happen. What does that mean for global philanthropy? Governments are stretched. Many corporations are struggling to survive. The social safety net, not necessarily in Europe, but in many, many countries, um, is badly torn. Uh, those are all the consequences of a global recession and a global pandemic. In a world where people want more cooperation and certainly want solutions, what is the role of philanthropy, do you think? How, how does it change? How does it evolve? 
Well, first of all, you know, philanthropy has a modest contribution to it all. We always, you know, when we talk about philanthropy, people think of this huge sector, which it is not. If you look at cross-border giving alone, you know, philanthropy comes after remittances, which are the biggest sums in particular of cross-border giving, after development aid, the state development aid, after individual giving, which means not institutionalized giving, and then there is the institutionalized philanthropy and giving. So let us be modest about what philanthropy can achieve. On the other hand, there is very powerful philanthropy. I do think it's stepping up and reevaluating how and what it funds. You know, COVID-19 poses a unique chance and a challenge for philanthropy. It, I think, has responded and it to, to COVID-19 and its multiple related crises in unprecedented ways. You know, I was at a meeting of the Munich Security Conference where they spoke about a polypandemic. It's not only a health issue. It's obviously much, much broader. That's how we have to look at it. Foundations were quick to respond to the crisis, both in terms of how they give as well as how much they give. Hundreds of funders joined uh, pledges for more flexible funding spearheaded by uh, big foundations like the Ford Foundation or similar pledges in Europe by Daphne and the EFC. We established emergency funds to support grantees, especially smaller nonprofits. And even the European foundation sector, which is probably not as flexible and uh, as innovative as the, the US one, but last year showed that in the moment of crisis, it can rise to the challenge and implement changes quickly. We also provided more flexible and unrestricted funding. We loosened reporting requirements and simplified processes. And you know what also gains momentum is some foundations, those who can, increasing spending levels. Uh, this is echoed by public calls for foundations to increase their payout rates. And I think a lot has been achieved in, in this regard. Collaboration, as I said before, is crucial. It, the pandemic emphasized how important it is to work together, both in terms of collaborating with other funders, as well as in terms of joining forces across sectors. And countries, even though across sectors you have huge asymmetries, you know, philanthropy usually cannot compare to the, to the government uh, sector uh, or, for example, to the business sector. We, for example, joined other funders in supporting the World Health Organization Solidarity Response Fund, among other things. And um, when you work on challenges like climate change, migration, inequality, or some others that we are working on, there is no question that you have to pool your funds with others in order to have an impact. And also it requires us to work on interdependencies between the issues and address the nexus. You have to look at health and inequality, as was shown last year. You have to look at climate um, and migration. You have to look at you know, uh, issues of, of peace and climate. So it's all very interrelated, and for us in our strategy, it's extremely important on, uh, to work on that nexus. You know, the pandemic has created new needs, but it has mostly amplified and accelerated already existing challenges and inequalities and brought them to the forefront and raised also awareness. And those groups that were most vulnerable before the pandemic are also hit hardest now. So I think the pandemic has catalyzed philanthropy to reevaluate what we do and how we do it, and um, you know has uh, forced us or should be forcing us to look at the legacies, at the individual legacies of philanthropic organizations, and to adopt them to the current situation. You talked about money and resources, but one of the things, in addition, that philanthropy and a foundation like yours 
can do is provide thought leadership. And clearly, although that's an overused phrase, where we have this gap between what people want, more globalization, more cooperation, uh, and what their governments are giving them, that's a perfect opportunity for someone like the Robert Bush Foundation uh, to step in and moving, as you just said, between identifying some of the linkages and emphasizing some of those linkages. And, and clearly, that seems to be an important part of your strategy. Well, yes, absolutely. And I would call it, you know, leadership in thought and in action. Uh, I think thinking alone can be very valuable and we need that, but also we need action. And it's obvious that, you know, it's not projects changing the world, it's individuals and organizations who are leader, leading in, in their thinking, in their ideas and in their actions. And I think philanthropy is best when, when it tries to emphasize best practice or support new best practice and help it amplify its voice. So yes, I think that uh, leadership is extremely important and we are looking for the, you know, for those brave actors who lead in their thinking and also lead in their actions um, wherever we go, whether it's within Germany or Europe or, or then globally. But you also have to look at the fact that public scrutiny has increased. Um, we, we have to be aware of that and that we have to fulfill the highest standards of transparency because the legitimacy of philanthropy can always be questioned. You know, these are not elected officials making decisions. And so I think it's all the more important that we work in, in alliances and do collaborative efforts because um, uh, we then also share the responsibility. Let me segue to the United States. You know the United States quite well. You studied here. You used to travel here when we could travel. Um, you've been deeply engaged with the United States for decades now. And I'm curious what you think about what's going on in the States. We have a new president. We have a new government. Uh, but I sense a lot of skepticism in Europe, somewhat more in France than in Germany, about America's future as a reliable ally, even after the transition to President Biden. As a European, as a friend of the United States, as someone who's deeply engaged in the transatlantic relationship, where do you think the U.S. is headed? Well, I think all of us, uh, you know, we're watching what was happening over the past weeks and with the riots and everything, and in particular, obviously, also the last four years um, with, with great concern. I personally also perceived a strong polarization in the United States before the Trump administration. This is not something that I, I would ascribe to the Trump uh, administration. And this is not unique to the United States. We see more and more polarization in many countries. Now, I think there is one big concern that we cannot pretend that we are going back to what we had four, five, or 10 years ago. And I think that is... Um, a very realistic view and approach that most Europeans share. There is worry because we need the United States uh, and, and this value-based leadership, even though I think, you know, to protect it as the leader of the world is always dangerous. I think you can, today, you have to, you have to be within an alliance. You have to lead together. You have to create alliances. So unilateral leadership is very difficult to achieve. And, um, the question is really how this polarization will play out uh, on the on the global scene, and how the the alliances which are very much needed will be uh, implemented. There is great relief uh, on uh, on issues like climate change, on the measures uh, taken to combat the pandemic. 
um, on reaching out to old and new allies uh, to create, you know, a joint space, a common space, a joint interest. However, I think nobody will rely on the U.S. Uh, to go back to what it was. I don't know which, which time you want to look at. And there is, of course, a worry that in four years' time with the next election, there might be a, an administration which does take a different approach than the Biden administration suggests it will. And I think this insecurity will remain. And so, you know, rather than just looking at the United States to lead, Europe is asked to bring its house in order and, um, and uh, to think about its own uh, leadership um, and uh, the issues that it is facing with all of the cacophony it has and it, it faces and the polarization it has within its countries and between the countries. So it's not a back to, you know, whenever we were before, but it's a new era. Um, and uh, it is an era where a lot of interest-based policies will be devised, but where we also cannot afford not to work together on big policy issues. So I think we, we should be uh, cautiously and very realistically optimistic about what is coming. But I do worry about uh, what is going to happen. I, I do worry and I question and I ask myself whether there is a big segment of U.S. society and of voters in the United States and citizens who maybe think that this administration is not a legitimate one. That is a very diff difficult environment to be operating in and to be devising policies in. I think that will um, lead to a lot of more friction, and we'll see how that plays out. And to push that a step further, what are the consequences for Europe of what you've just said? Obviously, you have Brexit, you have east-west, north-south tensions, you have new leadership coming in Germany, you've got an election coming in France, you've got the U.S., as you just pointed out, bouncing from one to another, who, to who knows where in the future. How do you build a more coherent Europe in, in, in that context? You see that this might be and could have been a European moment, even a more European moment. And I think that Europe in the end did step up to some of the challenge. But if you look at what is evolving now and how the vaccinations are being rolled out and even the conflicts on you know, uh, deliveries and so on with, for example, the UK or within Europe, I think that, that citizens will question whether the European Union uh, has been effective enough in dealing with this issue and whether we do have the at least basic consensus that we need. I don't think that we actually have a choice. We need to uh, look at it. We need leadership on the local level. You need leadership. You need participation for people, for citizens. You need to think about new forms of participation on all levels. You know, politicians will have to listen to citizens. If not, they will vote differently when there are elections. And we'll see how the elections over the next years um, uh, will go. And I think it's too early to tell what, for example, the, the, the toll of the pandemic on elections, on polarization and so on will be. And in that regard, it may well be that the, the recent U.S. election is the canary in the mine in the sense that the good news was that the U.S. had a massive turnout, the highest percentage wise since 1900. Unusual for the United States, two thirds of people voted. That's the good news. The bad news is half of those voted for one vision, half voted for the other vision. And we end up as divided as we were. And a lot of reaction against 
as you just suggested could happen in Europe, against government, against politicians, against the, the, the conventional wisdom. And I think that challenge is the one that the Robert Bosch Foundation, other foundations you're working with, other partners you're working with, certainly has the opportunity to try to step up to. Well, you know, I think the biggest challenge is not necessarily that one group voted for one direction, the other for the other. That is the nature of elections, I would say. I think the big challenge is that the party which which lost an election, that's not only the case for, for the United States, but can be the case for many other countries, uh, does not think that this, these elections were legitimate. And what that does, in particular to democracies in the long run, is the big issue. What happens when, you know, systems are considered legitimate only when your side wins? I mean, democracy means that there is, you know, you, you are able to vote, um, there is an election, and um, democracy is very consensus-based. And for example, Germany is an extremely consensus-based country in many ways. But what, what happens when those who did not win, whichever side they are, start believing that the system is not legitimate? And that they have uh, that the system has failed them. That will be the big challenge. And when, in the end, after an election, you do not see the readiness to find consensus, because that, in the end, is democracy. You know, one side wins, but then it also reaches out to the other side, and it usually has to reach out to the other side or to the many other sides and find coalitions. What if that is not possible anymore? Then you have a stalemate, and also um, I think uh, a feeling of. Uh, you know, being disenfranchised among voters. So it's the legitimacy of the system in democracies, which is under uh, attack and threat. And that's what I'm very worried about. And people have to feel that their vote, that their participation, that, uh, that they have ownership and that it counts. I think that's an excellent point and a terrific way to end this conversation, because clearly, as you said a couple of times, we need to think about how to make democracy work better. We need to think about evolving the forms and practices of democracy. We need to relearn how to lose an election, not just how to win an election. Uh, we need to think about minority rights and how to guarantee those rights and voices in a way that sustains the legitimacy of our systems. That certainly is a challenge, an immediate challenge in the United States. But as you've also said, it's a challenge in many, many other countries as well. Yes, it is. And I do hope that we can rise to the challenge and that philanthropy, you know, contributes in a small way to uh, bringing about uh, or, or actually showcasing some of the possible solutions. And essentially, by doing so, we create coalitions uh, with all of the other sectors um, and then allow for a transfer of the good practice into on, or, or actually a scaling of that of that best practice. Well, thank you, Sandra. I certainly believe that you, the Robert Bush Stiftung, other great foundations have, a, have a, an important role to play. And thank you for the role that you've been playing. And thank you for this conversation. Thank you, Ellen. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments on our website, talbergfoundation.org. And please subscribe to the podcast in the app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.